Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the repository that receives all new planning information, and extract the key things you need to know. So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnight and what it means for you. Rishi Sunak's installation as Prime Minister. What are the implications for planning? Michael Goh's return as levelling up secretary. What's at the top of his intray? And two of the UK's biggest firms of planning solicitors consider merging. What might this mean for the planning law sector? And in our deep dive section, we'll be exploring investment zones. What kind of sites are coming forward? And will the zone survive Liz Truss's departure as Prime Minister? By the end of the show, you should know enough to approach the office coffee machine with confidence. So time to get out the reading glasses. Ready to venture in? I guess so. Well, here we are again in room 106. So, John, what news stories stand out from the past fortnight? Well, the biggest story, obviously, is that we've got a new Prime Minister since our last podcast. But Liz Truss announced her departure shortly after we recorded our previous one. And last Tuesday, Rishi Sunak was appointed Prime Minister by King Charles III after winning the latest Conservative Party leadership battle. And what do we know about Sunak's views on planning and housing delivery? During the leadership campaign in the summer, that's the one where he made the final two and then lost to Liz Truss, Sunak vowed to prevent local authorities from changing Greenbelt boundaries to release land for developments if he became the PM. And he said he would use the forthcoming review of the National Planning Policy Framework to do this. He also proposed to introduce new rules that would require developers to build on sites with planning permission within a set time frame or face losing them. And alongside this, he also proposed a build-out levy to be raised on unbuilt planning permissions after a set period of time. He also said he would try to help councils complete local plans more easily by relaxing constraints, such as the requirement to demonstrate a five-year housing land supply and the duty to cooperate, which he said prevents local authorities from getting plans in place. And those two promises tie with proposals that are already in motion. And Sunak has also promised to review the way local housing need is assessed. He pointed out they're based on what he called out-of-date Office for National Statistic figures from 2014. And that's something the Trust has also promised, the um, changes to local housing need assessments. And finally, he hinted at restricting solar development on farmland. Again, that's something Trust had also been considering. And he's promised not to relax the planning rules restricting onshore wind farms and instead focus on building more offshore wind farms. I guess one of the questions is how bound he feels by those commitments he made in the summer, given the fact that he wasn't exactly elected in the in the process that immediately followed those hustings. But um, you know, I suspect that house builders will be dreading the idea of, of some kind of mandate that there can't be any greenbelt reviews. And also uh, we'll be concerned about some kind of new measures being brought in to force developers to build out more more quickly. Yeah, I think the fact that he hasn't reiterated these promises in the late, in the latest leadership campaign probably gives him a bit of leeway in that respect. But yeah, I mean, the, the fact that he was proposing an even tougher stance um, on Greenbelt development than the current rules and the kind of use it or lose it levy would worry a lot of house builders, you'd imagine. Okay, so... What do you think his appointment is going to mean for the sector? 
Well, he's promised to stick to the Conservative 2019 election manifesto, and he, he he made that promise in his first speech after being appointed Prime Minister. So I think we can probably expect more continuity with the Johnson agenda than the Truss agenda. Truss emphasised deregulation of planning rules in her supply side reforms, and that certainly doesn't appear to be Sunak's approach so far. And already, as we'll talk about shortly, both he and uh, Michael Gove appear to be rowing back on some of the key trust planning announcements. Uh, speaking of Gove, obviously he reappointed Michael Gove, which I'll talk about in more detail later. Michael Gove was a key Johnson appointment before they, they fell out again in the summer. So I think it's it's fair to assume that there's likely to be continuity in the housing and levelling up department with things like the the levelling up and regeneration bill that's going through Parliament. And the big question, I think, is what happens to the um, big planning change proposals that were announced by Truss and Kwarteng. OK, so since Sunak has been back at number 10, what's the government said about planning? Well, on Friday, we covered the big news from number 10, which said that um, this Truss's package of supply side reforms to the economy, which was to have included a major shake up of the planning system, had been dropped. Last week, the uh, number 10 spokesman told us that there are now no plans for the reforms as previously discussed. But at the same time, they said that Sunak's not necessarily ruling out embarking on reforms in individual areas, which could mean that similar changes to the planning system could still be being considered. Okay, but they've just basically tried to just wipe out at a single stroke the commitment to the to the broad package. Yes, they're giving themselves a bit of... Um, Wiggle room, I guess, is there. I mean, I suspect the new prime minister and his his new appointments to the cabinet are busy reviewing all the um, the trust announcements, and they haven't reached a final decision yet on on how they will proceed with those. Anything else to have emerged from um, from number ten since uh, since Sunak's arrival? Yes, one big announcement he made in his first prime minister's questions last Wednesday was a reversal of Liz Truss's controversial lifting of the government's moratorium on fracking. And Sunak told the House of Commons that he stands by the Conservative 2019 election manifesto, which continued the moratorium on fracking or shale gas extraction. And the manifesto commitment was that the moratorium, which had already been introduced, would stay in place until the scientific evidence showed that fracking activity is safe. And the government and also promised that the government wouldn't change planning rules to ease fracking development. Liz Trust, in one of her first acts as during a short stint as Prime Minister, was to lift the moratorium where there is local support for it. And in other comments in the same debate, Sunak also suggested that the current planning restrictions on onshore wind development would remain in place. Our listeners will remember that the growth plan announced by Truss and Kwarteng last month talked about bringing planning policies for onshore wind in line with other infrastructure projects and allowing such projects to be deployed more easily. But in the um, Commons last month, Labour MP asked Sunak whether he would stick to his leadership campaign pledge to prohibit any development of onshore winds, which we talked about briefly earlier. And Sunak replied, when it comes to energy policy, I stick by what we said in our manifesto. The important thing is to focus on our long-term energy security. That means more renewables, more offshore wind, and indeed more nuclear. And that is what the government will deliver. So it wasn't entirely clear as the Conservatives' 2019 manifesto doesn't specifically mention onshore wind, but equally there's no promise in there to change the rules at that time which restricted onshore wind in England. 
So finally, on the same day, in response to a question about whether he would reaffirm the government's commitment to protecting the green belt and adopting a rigorous brownfield first policy, Sunak replied that he would, adding, we must protect our green belts and we're adopting a brownfield first strategy. I'm pleased we had a record number of new homes built in the last year, but it's important that we build those homes in the right places. Okay, fair enough. And then I think for your second story, you're looking at Gove's return as levelling up secretary. Yes. So following Sunak's triumph, he quickly set about reshuffling Truss's cabinet. And as part of that, he reappointed Michael Gove as his housing levelling up secretary. Of course, Michael Gove is no newcomer. It's his second stint in the role. He had been sacked by Johnson in the summer after 10 months in the job. Okay. And what's in his intray? Well, the most significant package of measures would have to be the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, which was published earlier this year and is now going through Parliament. And this proposes a series of far-reaching changes to the planning system, including a new infrastructure levy, mandatory design codes, scrapping the duty to cooperate and changes to local plan making. Alongside that, there's also the proposed changes to the MPPF that have yet to materialise. So in May, when the Housing Department published the Leveling Up Bill, it also published a policy document alongside it, which revealed that the government intended to make a number of changes to the MPPF to, in its words, support effective implementation of the bill. So these were announced back in May, and it was promised that they'd be set out in a prospectus document in July, but that document is yet to emerge. Other big tasks in trade include solving the so-called nutrient neutrality problem that's holding up planning applications for new housing in many parts of the country and implementing the um, impending biodiversity net gain requirement that comes into force in November next year. And there's also the um, planning reform proposals announced by Truss and Kuateng, including investment zones and the um, planning infrastructure bill. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether the planning infrastructure bill is taken forward, actually. Yeah, if that ever materialises. And um, what reaction has there been from the sector to his reappointment? Well, there definitely seems to be a lot of relief to have an experienced housing secretary return to the role after a period of unprecedented change, even by the housing department standards. And there's hope that this will usher in a period of ministerial and policy stability. It looks like Lee Rowley is going to remain as the housing and planning minister, which adds to the sense of continuity when it comes to planning. Yeah, it says something, doesn't it, when somebody who's been in place for sort of a couple of months, is uh, his retention is, is uh, seen as a reassuring sign of stability. Yeah, I, th- I think even by the housing department standards, to have a new housing minister after several months would just be too much, wouldn't it? Okay, but people generally are actually quite welcoming the fact that, that, that Gove is back and can carry forward the, um, the work that he'd started under, under Boris Johnson. Yes, from the comments we've had, that sentiment certainly seems to be coming through. I just think the chopping and changing at the top of the department's been so extreme recently that um and the, you know, what we're seeing in terms of local plan making on the ground and how that's seems to be grinding to a halt. I, I think um people think that yeah, we definitely just need a period of stability now. Okay. So remind us about the sort of fundamental principles of of, of Gove's approach to planning as expressed when he was last Secretary of State. Well very helpfully, Michael Gove set out his um, planning priorities when um, he was fairly new in the job last November, and he appeared before the um, Housing, Communities and Open Government Select Committee. And he said his planning of priorities included, firstly, a greater focus on beauty in new schemes, digitalising the planning system, simplifying plan making, 
achieving net zero carbon emissions and new housing, giving communities a greater say over development and reforming infrastructure funding. And at that time, he'd recently said that he'd be reviewing the planning white paper changes, which many of which have now been abandoned. But he said that this review would examine the impact of permitted development rights, which, of course, have been very controversial. But we haven't heard much about that since. But that's something worth bearing in mind that that may be another area that he'll be looking at now he's back. He was also critical about the planning inspector, wasn't he, towards the end of his tenure as uh, Secretary of State? Yes, yes, he was. And he reiterated some of those comments at the um, Conservative Party conference recently, where he said that um, some of the decisions by the planning inspectorate, where they go against local community sentiment, he suggested they were anti-democratic. But since he's been back in the post, he's only been back for a couple of days, but he's already given some interviews um, indicating what his priorities are, I think. Yes, he gave two big announcements in TV interviews yesterday. Firstly, he said that the government's 300,000 home annual housing target is still in place in an interview with the BBC. And our readers will know that um, there's been quite a bit of debate during Liz Truss's administration about whether that target still remained in place. Early this month, the housing minister, Lee Rowley, said that the promise was committed to scrapping the target. During her leadership campaign, Liz Truss had said she wanted to abolish what she called top-down Stalinist housing targets, but it wasn't entirely clear what she meant by that. And then yesterday on the um, BBC's Sunday with Laura Kunzberg programme, Marco was interviewed and he was asked straight out, does the 300,000 home target still remain? And he said yes. He did say it's going to be difficult to achieve because of the economic circumstances the country now faces. But then he made a distinction between the national housing target, 300,000 homes, and the local housing need figures that councils have to meet. And he said there are two things here. The first is the top-down housing targets that Lee Rowley was referring to and Liz was referring to are part of a broader and different calculation from the 300,000 homes in the manifesto. We're talking two different things. My view is that what we need is a fair way of allocating housing need that takes account of changes in population. Some of the calculations in the past have been wrong and we need to rebase that. But critically, what we need is to make sure local communities are consenting to development, which means homes need to be more beautiful and we need the infrastructure alongside them. But critically, it also means we need to make sure the environment is protected as well. So again, he's reiterating both some of his concerns that he'd previously voiced about local housing need and some of these planning promises he'd made last November to the select committee. Okay, I, I think it's quite interesting that he's talking about the need for housing need calculations to take into account the latest population figures, because that maybe suggests that he might be considering tweaking the, the sort of formula uh, without entirely getting rid of the, the standard method. And uh, in particular, that he might be going to get rid of the insistence that old figures are used, the 2014-based figures are used, and instead um, suggest the use of more up-to-date figures, which, of course, would bring down some of the housing need totals. Yes, that's right, because the, the, the more recent household growth projections have been significantly lower than the ones that were published in the middle of the decade, which is what the, um, the standard method is based on. And I think a lot of people in the sector would uh, would agree that those figures need to be made up to date. But I think what um, isn't clear is when he talks about making sure we have local communities consenting and how you, you involve that in the process. 
but that's not entirely clear at this stage. And interestingly, Philip Hammond, the former chancellor, was also on the show and he was talking about Gove's comments. And he said that um, it's going to be very difficult for the government if they remove these local housing need figures, that um, it's going to be very difficult to achieve the 300,000 homes a year target. Okay. And anything else that Gove has said so far? Yes. Well, there was another very significant announcement he made in an interview with Sky News yesterday. Um, He said that he is reviewing the uh, Trust Administration's controversial investment zones initiative. And he said that anything that might in any way undermine environmental protections is out. And um, I know you're going to be talking about that in more detail with Joey shortly. Okay. And uh, yeah, so tell us about your third story of of the last fortnight. My final story is uh, was, in fact, the most well-read story over the past fortnight. And it's about two of the uh, law firms with the UK's biggest planning teams have announced they're in talks over a merger. So Womble Bond Dickinson and BDB Pittman's said in a joint statement that they are in early discussions about a potential merger. OK, so, so how many planning solicitors do each of these firms have? Well, according to our annual planning law survey, which came out earlier this year, BDP Pittman's have 35 planning solicitors and 40 planning staff as of June, which makes it the second biggest firm in our survey behind Pinsent Masons. And Wobble Bond Dickinson had 30 planning solicitors and 43 staff, which put it joint third in the survey, along with Evershed, Sutherland and CMS. Okay, so, so yeah, clearly um, they're going to create a, a, a huge firm. Well, assuming that there aren't any redundancies, what, 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 do we know what's going to happen to staffing levels after the merger? No, we asked the firms about that, and they said that there'll be no further information on staffing levels or the financial situation until the the, um, the merger talks are concluded. But we, we can we can estimate if planning staffing levels remain the same. The newly merged firm would have 65 planning solicitors and 83 planning staff. And would that make it the biggest in the uh, in the sector? That would make it the second biggest in our survey and not too far behind Pins and Masons, which as of June had 80 planning solicitors and 93 planning staff. So it would be a very it would be a very big player in the planning law sector. Okay, well, many thanks, John. And of course, more details of all these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. See you later to talk about your reader's choice story of the week. But for now, I'm going to have to leave you for a bit to do this week's deep dive, in which we'll be exploring the issue of investment zones. Okay, bye for now. Okay, so now I need to make my way across to the area of Room 106 where all the investment zone bids are being collected. And this, uh, I have to say, there's already quite an impressive pile of paper gathering up here. Oh, there's Joey Gardner, our special correspondent, who's been looking into this for us. Hi, Joey. Afternoon, Richard. You've been looking at these, uh, these investment zone bids, Joey. Can you, but first of all, can you just remind us what investment zones are? Of course, Richard. Investment zones were one of the brief Liz Trust administration's flagship policies, and they were areas designed really to spur economic growth through accelerating house building and infrastructure provision. And the idea is that this kind of economic activity was going to be driven by 
uh, generous tax incentives for in, both for investors and for local authorities and um, liberalization of uh, planning and environmental regulations within these kind of tightly defined zones within small areas in uh, local authorities. And these are areas which local authorities would would bid to have designated as investment zones. Okay. And if uh, the success of the policy was judged purely on local authority interest, this would be um, looking like a success. Is, is that is that fair to say? Well, certainly it seems from what we know that there have been a, a large number of individual applications. Now, we don't know how widespread they are across lots and lots of authorities. We know that at least 41 authorities have bid for investment zone status. So that's that's only a, uh, just over one in 10 authorities. But we do know that at least by um, the counting of um, consultant LSH, at least 221 individual bids for sites have gone in. So that is a very large number of investment zone site bids, certainly. We think, in fact, the true figure is likely to be much, much higher than this because because many bids simply won't have been made made public. One council of official that we spoke to said that a DLUC official told them that the department had received in excess of 500 individual site applications. And what kinds of sites are being put forward? Well, the government asked for local authorities to put in bids for large mixed-use development opportunities. So clearly, from the sites that have been made public, we've had a lot of those large out-of-town and edge-of-town mixed-use commercial and residential development areas, the kind of opportunities that the government was envisaging, schemes with that have residential elements to them, but also incorporate science parks, business parks, industrial estates, that kind of thing. However, we have also seen quite a, a significant number of schemes which are purely commercial, such as, say, the Ceramic Valley development in Stoke or the Gigafactory um, scheme close to Coventry Airport. And we have also seen a number of garden town projects putting themselves forward, such as Kent's Otterpool Park, which I suppose uh, would be seen as mixed use, but primarily, uh, I guess, would be driven, you know, would be envisaged as residential projects. Uh, One thing that I think definitely wouldn't have necessarily been envisaged initially by the by the government, but w- which we've also seen is um, we've seen a number of local authorities put forward town centre regeneration schemes. You know, much smaller areas, much more tightly defined, not large out of town development opportunities, but small regeneration and kind of levelling up type schemes that have been submitted. So uh, that's that's also an interesting angle on this. But the exact mix, I guess, between these different types of schemes is really unknown because, uh, I mean, clearly a large proportion of these bids remain confidential. And, you know, perhaps the majority of the bids remain confidential. So we just don't know the exact balance. It sounds like quite a lot of bids have come forward quite quickly. What is prompting local authorities to make these bids, do you think? 
from the local authorities that, that we've spoken to and from the commentators we've spoken to as well, it, it seems primarily that it's the tax incentives that's driving the attraction for making these bids. Now, to explain that, I suppose the argument would go from a local authority that a local authority would have a development on the stocks that they're perhaps struggling for various viability reasons to actually see developed. They're keen for it to be taken forward, either for economic development reasons or for house building reasons. But so far, it hasn't actually been built out for one reason or another. They see these tax incentives as a potential game changer in actually getting that development brought forward. And certainly under the trust administration, it seemed that in addition to that, being designated as an um, investment zone was potentially the only game in town in terms of being identified for, for any future regeneration or infrastructure or leveling up funding from government. So if you didn't have that investment zone status, you probably wouldn't in future qualify for government funding. Now, clearly under this new administration, the Sunak administration, that second attraction for bidding for this is is unlikely to apply, but the tax incentives still do. Now, what we've been told so far, though, is the other part of the investment zone proposition, the liberalisation of environmental rules and planning rules, simply wasn't a driver for the local authority bids. I mean, how, however much that may have appealed to the investors and developers working in those areas, it wasn't an attraction for the local authorities. Uh, um, quite the opposite. In fact, a number of the authorities made the point in the bids that they made in public that they would actually only take this forward on the basis that they were able to maintain existing environmental standards. Okay, interesting. So, of course, the big elephant in the room that we haven't really mentioned yet is that nobody knows whether investment zones are going to survive Liz Truss's departure. And uh, Michael Gove has said over the weekend, as we've been discussing earlier, that he's reviewing the investment zone policy. Do you think investment zones will survive his review? I mean, this is the $64,000 question. There are different views on this. I think... One reading and probably the majority view would be that Gove saying that it is under review is politicians' code for saying this policy is effectively dead. Investment zones will be deprioritized in the short term and in the medium term and long term effectively forgotten about and uh, uh, left to gather dust. However, another reading is that the driver for the government to prioritise development and local growth has not changed. It still it still wants to promote growth, particularly in, in areas where levelling up is a priority. And the chance to kind of harness local enthusiasm for this is not going to be something it's going to want to pass up if it has another option. So where it's feasible, maybe it will want to continue to harness this and so therefore there may be there may be a way forward for the for the investment zone program in a more limited format but one thing i think that all the commentators are agreed upon 
is that there's no chance of investment zones being anything like the scale of program that was envisaged under trust. And I think the main reason for that is that the scale of the tax incentives that were being proposed under the, the original proposition put forward under the growth plan were simply so generous that if you had a very, very significant number of these investment zones, there was a potentially enormous impact, revenue impact for the Treasury. And as we all know now, after weeks and weeks of coverage, you know, the Treasury is looking for every penny it can get at the moment. And the idea that it would simply pass up this revenue and and indeed that it would risk what what is always the criticism of this kind of policy that it it simply all you end up achieving is displacing economic activity from one area of the country to another area of the country and just bringing it into an area where the economic activity that would have happened somewhere else just happens in a place where it goes ahead untaxed that is not something that the treasury is going to want to risk at this point. So it feels like if it does go forward, it would go forward in a much more limited way, either with very, very much reduced tax incentives or just a very, very much smaller number of investment zones. Okay. And yet, as you said earlier on, the the key thing that seemed to be driving people's interest in it was hefty tax incentives for, for both local authorities and for developers. So how much interest there would remain in a sort of uh, light version of the scheme will, um, I guess, is open to question. Indeed. So you would have, if you did want to continue with it, you would have a choice between reducing the tax incentives and thereby reducing any interest in the scheme, any of the interest that you had in the first place, or continuing with the same tax incentives, but simply setting up criteria for successful bidding, which made it very, very, very difficult for anyone to um, successfully uh, achieve investment zone status and ending up disappointing the vast majority of people who bid for investment zone status. It looks like those would be the two options if you did did want to carry it forward. And certainly, um, Michael Gove has seems to have flatly ruled out any deregulation in terms of environmental regulations, at least, as well at the weekend. Okay, fantastic. Well, well, thanks very much, Joey. Is there anything else you think is important to say about this topic? That covers it, really. I mean, it will just be interesting to see how far this government wants to differentiate itself from the brief Liz Trust interregnum, as it were. I mean, it certainly feels from the interviews over the weekend that Michael Gove was given that the impression we're getting, it's almost as if this new government would like everyone to forget that the last uh, three months ever happened at all. And I think that's probably what's driving most commentators to think that, you know, whatever the merits of continuing with a limited version of the investment zones program probably the greater likelihood is just that it will fall by the wayside entirely because they just simply won't want to link themselves with anything from the trust administration okay i just wonder whether there's a political cost of marching a whole load of red wall local authorities uh, you know up to the top of the hill and then marching them down again 
Well, certainly that's the um, kind of political judgment that Michael Gove is, uh, I guess, paid to make in these circumstances. Okay, Joey. Well, thank you very much for that. I'll leave you to uh, continue to sift through these um, piles of uh, possibly now um, redundant investment zone bids, although that that may be a bit premature, and uh, look forward to seeing you in Room 106 again soon. Great to see you, Richard. Thanks very much. Right, now to find John again, so he can select his reader's choice. The story that we haven't covered so far, but which has drawn lots of attention from readers. Ah, there he is. So, uh, what's the reader's choice this week, John? Well, this week, it's our third most read story of the past fortnight, and it's about an interview we did with a councillor who was uh, a member of the planning committee and is a deputy council leader. And she was talking about her terrifying experiences at a planning committee meeting. She said she was so alarmed by what she called an angry mob at a community event protesting at a a planning approval the council had made that she now has a police presence at her surgeries. Cathy Mitchell is the deputy leader of Warrington Borough Council in Cheshire. The actual meeting at which the disorder took place was three years ago, but she spoke to us last week as part of a uh, campaign by the Local Government Association to ease the threats faced by local government politicians. So Mitchell was, was describing the um, the situation to us. She said, people were screaming at me, pushing me and poking towards my face over a big planning application. I could not get away. There was no escape. Everywhere I turned, there were more people. I thought, this is how it ends. I honestly thought I was going to die. A colleague from the planning committee dragged me out. So she was speaking out as part of the local government association's debate, not hate campaign, which found that seven in 10 local councillors had experienced abuse or intimidation in the past year. Okay, so this is the latest account we've had. We've had one or two um, other reports in in the not-too-distant past of sort of unruly behaviour at planning meetings, but this is probably the most dramatic one we've heard. Yes, last autumn we did a more in-depth article about public disorder at planning committee meetings, and that had been prompted by an incident at um, Camden Council in North London where... um, Councillors faced a uh, foul-mouthed tirade from members of the public after they approved a um, housing scheme in their street. And one of the protesters actually hurled a chair at the committee members as they were being hustled out. And at the time, we spoke to um, commentators about this, and um, they felt that public disorder at planning committee meetings had definitely been getting worse. And among the reasons for that, were um, increased housing growth pressures and a feeling by some residents they're being shut out of decision making. Okay, well, thank you very much, John. Uh, I think our work is done. Let's get out of here before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. Look out for our Planning for Housing conference in London on the 17th of November. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Aidan Lyons and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening. Goodbye.